Alrighty, welcome back everybody. This is Thomas Whiting from Miracle Medical Center out here in hot and sweaty Phoenix. Today we're going to be uh, talking about something a little more fun. Uh, we're going to be talking about hypertensive emergencies. So on a previous post, or one that will be coming out here in the future, we're going to be talking about something that we deal with frequently, but does not exactly get our hearts racing, and that's asymptomatic hypertension. Today we're going to be talking about true hypertensive emergencies and how to manage them. So to start out, goal of treatment of a hypertensive emergency should be, and we'll talk about what defines a hypertensive emergency here in a little bit, but just to kind of start off, we should be shooting for either a MAP or systolic blood pressure reduction of roughly 20 to 25% in the first hour, followed by a reduction to normal over 24 to 48 hours. So that's an important thing to realize because a lot of times we'll get super, uh, a little bit too gung-ho about our blood pressure management and we can bottom these, people's out, uh, these people out depending on what the true emergency is. I mean, some people will be talking about aortic dissections. We want to bottom them out, but typically speaking, someone that comes in with hypertension but isn't their chief complaint, and we'll talk about this a little later, but we had a case recently where we had someone that was being admitted for something else but did have some hypertension on the side. Now, this doesn't play into this talk particularly well because this wasn't a true hypertensive emergency. Nonetheless, the patient got his blood pressure managed uh, and he started to have some watershed stroke symptoms uh, and neurology was consulted and there was this whole hullabaloo of pushing TPA or no. Anyway, uh, luckily we didn't push the TPA because once his blood pressure uh, became with a little bit of fluid bolus, he responded totally completely and all of his neuro symptoms resolved because they were secondary to us dropping his blood pressure precipitously when we should have been shooting for these goals. So that's something to be aware of, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the medications that we use and why we kind of shy away from some uh, versus others. So usually this translates into this goal that we were talking about, translate into, uh, into a reduction of the blood pressure to below 180 over 120s roughly in the first hour, and then hopefully below 160s to 140s over 110s to 100s uh, over the next 24 hours. So let's get started. Let's talk about some true neurologic emergencies and how to manage them. So the first is intracranial hemorrhage. Um, Intracranial hemorrhage, there's, uh, there's a little bit, little bit of debate over here. Neurologists will cite um, in the ATACH-2 trial, so that's the one, the trial that talks specifically about hypertensive uh, management in patients with uh, hemorrhage, that the patients in this trial, so the neurologists, because there's obviously kind of two, two camps here, but the neurologists that read this trial are going to cite that the patients that had the blood pressure less than 140 systolic had less hematoma expansion. And that's kind of what they sink their teeth into. And that's why they say, you know what, we probably should get their blood pressure below 140. Because th that is true. That was one of the endpoints that they found, the secondary ones. But it wasn't, they didn't see any decrease in death or mortality, uh, sorry, or morbidity or disability. Uh, and so most of the neurologists that I've talked to specifically about uh, hypertensive management in hemorrhage, they actually still recommend to get it down at least to 140, even sub-140s. Um, I know that the last neurologist that I admitted a stroke to, he wanted his BP like 110 to 139. Um, that hasn't been really borne out in most uh, emergency physicians and other, sh other stroke neurologists that I've talked to do use a less invasive blood pressure management protocol secondary to the findings of the attached to trial. And if you're interested in reading that trial, um, We'll have the citation below as well in the in the uh, PDF for this uh, podcast as well. So.
hemorrhagic stroke and we used to be very very invasive and some people still are they use a very very invasive uh, blood pressure management but most of us now are taking a less invasive because it doesn't seem to decrease uh, mortality or morbidity now let's talk a little bit about ischemic stroke so in patients uh, if the patient is a tpa candidate then you need to lower the blood pressure below 180 over 105 as this is a contraindication to TPA administration. So that's something to keep in mind. If they're not a candidate for TPA, then we generally, unless they're like, if they're below 220s, you know, and maybe that's a little on the high end, but if they're, even if they're a little hypertensive, we don't generally worry about them because the thought is that with that hypertension, they're gonna be perfusing the penumbra around the ischemic core with that high blood pressure. So basically it's a way of maintaining their CPPs, their cerebral perfusion pressures, right? Because CPP is equal to ICP minus MAP. So if you have a high MAP, then you're gonna be helping to uh, augment that CPP and hopefully perfusing the, the penumbra. <clears throat> so usually uh, if, they're, if they're not a TPA candidate, we worry about doing, uh, or if they are a TPA candidate, sorry, we wanna lower their blood pressure. If they're not, we kind of let them ride high. So just talking a little bit about what agents we use to lower blood pressure. Um, so we like to use ones that are relatively quick on, titratable, and quick off if, if we overshoot. Um, Nicardipine is a really good initial option to use with intracranial hemorrhage. It's a calcium channel blocker. There's also, also the thoughts. Uh, usually we reference nemotipine to prevent coronary, uh, sorry, uh, vasospasm post-hemorrhage. And in, that's only in the traumatic post-hemorrhage patient that the um, literature is borne out. But nonetheless, uh, it's a good, easily titratable medication uh, that you can use to lower their blood pressure in both of these. So nicardipine is usually my go-to medication that I start out with for neurologic hypertensive emergencies, including hemorrhagic uh, stroke and ischemic stroke. All right, moving on. So cardiac emergencies uh, and secondary to hypertension. So uh, congestive heart failure. There's kind of two, uh, there's obviously the hypertensive congestive heart failure. There's also the hypotensive congestive heart failure patient. We're not going to talk about the hypotensive uh, patient at this time. We're going to focus mostly on the fluid overload and hypertensive cardio, uh, CHF patient. And nitro is always your number one uh, on these patients because one, you can start it, you just, you know, throw a sublingual in there and you can move on from there to get them started. We're not going to talk about the rest of the CHF management because we'll have a podcast in and of that on its own, but just really quick congestive heart failure as a signal or uh, as an end organ uh, manifestation of hypertension, your first and foremost go-to is going to be nitro. I start with sublingual, uh, and we know that the sublingual nitro dose is 400 micrograms, and if you're giving it every five minutes, like it says, in up to three doses, if you do the math on that, it equates to about 80 micrograms per minute. So keep that in mind when you say, hey, I'm going to start with some sublinguals, you know, because it's easily, it's right here. The nurse can pop them in and you're, you know, you're off to the, off to the races. But when you start to think about, hey, we need to start a drip on this person because, you know, their blood pressure still isn't coming down quite as bad. Their lungs sound wet. Just remember that because usually we'll throw a, a nitro drip on and the nurse asks you, you know, what do you want to start it on? You say five or 10. When really, if you calculate out how much nitro you've been giving this person sublingually, it's roughly 80 micrograms per minute. So... I start at 20, 25, because I'm still not ballsy enough to throw it on to 80 micrograms per minute at the start, but you don't have to start at 5 micrograms per minute and titrate up to effect. Truly, you're giving them more than that from the start. So, other important thing is other, other cardiac medications that we usually use to lower blood pressure, we don't use in acute congestive heart failure patients, including beta blockers uh, or other, you know, uh, 
medications that are going to decrease cardiac contractility. That's not what you want. You want to decrease your preload, which is why nitros are your go-to, as well as non-invasive ventilation uh, if they're truly in um, a congestive heart failure exacerbation or are having difficulty breathing, the lungs sound wet, et cetera, et cetera. Another pearl is hydralazine also has been shown to increase cardiac work and probably should be avoided uh, in these patients. So I've seen IV hydralazine used before in patients that were um, in congestive heart failure, that they were trying to lower their blood pressure, but it's actually been shown to increase the cardiac work and probably should be shied away from. So you're more looking towards the nitro medications given that they decrease the preload um, and help you manage better the blood pressure in these acute uh, failure patients. All right, next let's talk about vascular emergencies, and this is going to include uh, the big baddie, aortic dissection, and this is one where you want to hit it hard and you want to hit it fast. So we're talking about an acute drop, and you want to drop their heart rate and their BP as fast as possible to get a goal of a heart rate below 60 and a blood pressure goal below 120. So 100 to 120 and 60 for your heart rate. Our go-to medication for this is Esmol because it's quick on, um, it's rapidly titratable, and you can get them down to this these goals. It also will affect the heart rate, right? So you're actually looking for that beta blockade here with Esmolol versus you didn't want that in your CHFR. So an interesting thing is we had a case just the other day of a... Uh, abdominal aorta, uh, aortic aneurysm, sorry, dissection, um, and a section that went down into the abdominal aorta is what I was trying to say, and we had a really hard time. She was recalcitrant to our uh, esmolol. She ended up on an esmolol and a nicardipine drip, and we were almost having to start a third blood pressure medication just to get this uh, patient's <laughs> uh, to this goal of 120. And what we actually started hap seeing happen is she was on such high rates of esmolol that her blood, her heart rate would drop down into the 40s. And so we'd have to uh, draw back on that. And so we thought, well, maybe if we had a calcium channel blocker, we'll be able to maintain the heart rate without as much blockade uh, and still getting the heart, uh, the blood pressure down. And that's ultimately what we got her into that sweet zone was with those two medications and kind of having to titrate them to the appropriate effect to maintain her. And then we had ultimately transferred her to an outside facility to get the appropriate uh, vascular surgery that she needed. But I thought that was interesting. So kind of got to mix and match. Esmolol is your number one. Nicardipine is another good one. We can talk about nitroprusside here, but remember that nitroprusside has the uh, toxic effects of um, cyanide buildup uh, during the breakdown process in the kidney. So it's not an ideal agent. And you probably should look to use one of the other two first. Um, but again, remembering that you can have patients that aren't going to respond to those and that may need even a third um, a third one. So just talking a little bit about esmolol dosing now. So initial bolus is going to be 500 to 1,000 micrograms per kilo given over one minute, followed by 50 to 300 micrograms per kilogram per minute infusion. And if the heart rate is at goal, a good second agent for further blood pressure medication would be narcartapine, as we talked about for focusing more on the blood pressure than the heart rate. All right, so last but definitely not least is a hypertensive emergency during pregnancy. So which medications are okay to use during pregnancy? Because this is one that I know that took me a while to figure out um, because there are some that you shouldn't use. Labetalol is good, and this is usually what we use. It's our number one, you know, labetalol when you're talking about... Um, uh, preeclampsia, eclampsia, etc. Hydralazine can be used. Methyl dopa uh, can be used as well, and phenyl uh, phenyl dopam dopam. Sorry, 
Never actually used that one, so I don't know. Nicardipine can also be used. If you have a hypertensive pregnant patient, you've got to be thinking about preeclampsia slash eclampsia. And this is one of those things that I always love to use when I'm teaching med students is you can turn a really boring hypertensive patient to a very interesting and high-yield teaching patient when you just say, well, what if this patient was, you know, six months pregnant? How would that change uh, your workup? Because maybe it's just, you know, a 35-year-old male with blood pressure of 160 over, you know, 90. And there's, yeah, that's totally fine, like we talk about in our asymptomatic hypertensive talk. And we're probably not going to do much with that. But you change that patient from a 35-year-old male to a 35-year-old six-month pregnant female, that changes everything. So you got to remember, you got to be thinking preeclampsia, eclampsia. So um, you got to be talking about, you got to be talking to our OBGYN consults and you got to be getting mag on board, a lot of it. So we start with four grams, uh, four grams mag sulfate over 30 minutes. And you, and then again, labetalol is our go-to blood pressure. So mag is going to be stopping or hopefully preventing prophylactically um, helping the pre or prevent, sorry, preeclampsia to migrate to eclampsia especially if the patient's having any neuro symptoms or headaches. And then labetalol is our go-to with 20 milligram IV boluses. Um, and that can be given every 10 minutes, or you can start a continuous infusion at 0.5 to 2 milligrams per minute with a maximum accumulative 24-hour dose of 300 milligrams. So that's kind of just the go-to for your hypertensive emergencies, labetalol. You can have these other ones in your back pocket and then get your mag on board, obviously. So I hope this has been a pretty easy or a high yield, quick hit uh, blood pressure management for emergencies. We're going to have another one coming out on basically our management of the asymptomatic hypertensive patient. And just some final pearls. Um, there's a study called the CLUE trial, and I'll include this in our show notes. Um, it was a randomized comparative effectiveness trial of IV nicardipine versus labetalol use in the emergency department. It found that nicardipine actually had better antihypertensive properties than labetalol. So um, that kind of shifted a little bit. I was using a lot of nicardipine anyway for my management of true hypertensive emergencies, but even more so, I kind of lean more towards the calcium channel blockers on nicardipine, which is funny because a lot of the cardiologists that you talk to are the opposite. They think we have a love affair with uh, calcium channel blockers, whereas a lot of the cardiologists tend to use the beta blockers. But that, I think that more has to do with the acute setting versus the chronic setting, which cardiologists see their patients in, and beta blockers do have a better um, profile as, as far as helping the patient in the chronic long-term, especially heart failure and stuff like that. But the calcium channel blockers, I think in the acute phase and in the emergency department actually have a better uh, profile for helping our patients. And then finally, we talked about this a little bit, but a little uh, in-service training pearl. Nitroprusside does contain cyanide, which is released from the molecule in a dose-dependent manner and can precipitate cyanide toxicity. So this is most pronounced in renal failure or renal-impaired patients uh, and can present with altered mental status and lactic acidosis. So if you've ever, uh, I have never actually used nitroprusside um, for this, or because of this, I should say, because we have so many other things that we can use uh, and it has this possible cyanide toxicity. And also remember that whatever you are using a peripheral uh, dilator like nitroprusside or nitroglycerin, you tend to have a reflex tachycardia. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this um, podcast. Thanks for listening.